All right, First Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin reading again in uh, verse number uh, 2, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on once we've reviewed a couple of things here. Well, that doesn't make sense. Let's start in verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on a father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this book of First Peter. We thank you for the things we've learned so far in it, and we just pray today now that, Lord, you would speak to us once again through the pages of your word. This is your word. It's not uh, just the writings of, of a man named Peter, but it's uh, your inspired word uh, that you used him to write. And so help us to accept it as such today to be encouraged, strengthened, helped, convicted if need be. And Lord, help us to respond to it rightly. I pray that where we need to make changes in our life, where we need to respond in some way, you'll help us to do so. And I pray especially, Lord, if there's anybody here today who does not know uh, the salvation that is described herein, I pray they would know it by the end of this day. So bless this time. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Forgive me for anything that would hinder. Help me today, Father, to 
be clear and accurate and practical. And uh, Lord, if, if there's anything here that I've thought about saying that I ought not to, I pray you'd protect me from that. And if there's anything I need to say, help me to say it as clearly and boldly as I can. So just use this time. We commit it to you, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we have uh, been just about three weeks now in a, in a series in the book of First Peter. Uh, our normal way of preaching through the Bible is to take a book of the Bible and preach through it systematically from one end to the other. We've done that with, with quite a few of the books of the Bible now. We don't always do it. Sometimes we do some topical stuff, but uh, that is our current plan. And so right now, we've been in First Peter for just a while. In our last study... Uh, we concentrated on those first, the first part of what we read this morning, verses 2 through 12, where Peter there very eloquently uh, described who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. And so I read that again today so that it would be in our minds so that we could review it just a little bit. I mean, who are we? He said in verse number 2 that we are chosen, the elect of God. He said in verse number 3 that we are born again, begotten of Him. He said in verse 4 that we are heirs. He said in verse 5 that we are a people kept and protected by the very power of God. That's who we are. And what do we have? He said some things there that we have, and we talked about these a couple of weeks ago. He said that we have hope in verse number 3. We have an incorruptible and undefiled and unfading inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven, verse number 4. That may be one of my new favorite verses in all the Bible since I've studied it over the last few weeks. What a great truth that is. We have an incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is reserved for us. Uh, just waiting there. We have joy, according to verse number 6. Yes, he says, we might have some trials, and we might have some tests, verse number 7, but those are temporary. They serve a purpose only for a little while. We even learned that we have been blessed with some knowledge and some understanding that others didn't have. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets didn't have the knowledge of these things, according to verses 10 through 12, nor even the angels of God, according to verse number 12. So that's what we talked about last time who we are and what we have in Christ. But now, I want us to turn our attention to, uh, just the way Peter does here, to, to some of the results of all that. Peter, in verses 13 through 21, uh, he transitioned from who and what we are to uh, what those truths should translate to in our lives. Notice, verse number 13 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. And it's always good when we see the word therefore to ask ourselves a question. What is that question? What is the Therefore. Therefore, yes, very, very helpful question for us to ask ourselves. Peter was saying that because of who you are in Christ and because of what you have in Him, there ought to be some results of that. There ought to be some application to that. There are some things you ought to do. There are some things you ought to be. For example, he suggested here, and I, I, I just come up with nine to eight different things that I see here in these verses. He said we ought to be mindful or thoughtful in verse number 13. We ought to be sober or self-controlled, also in that same verse. Be hopeful in that same verse. He said we should be obedient, changed, holy, verses 14 through 16. We ought to be fearful, verse 17. And we ought to be reminded or aware of some things. And that's in verses 18 through 21. Now, we could look at all those eight things, but I'm going to try to condense them down into three because I like three-point outlines. And so we're going to condense it down into three things, and uh, let's look at it that way. First of all, 
First of all, we need to be thoughtful and hopeful. Look again at verse number 13. Thoughtful and hopeful. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Hmm. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You know, it's one that uh, might need some explanation because it's not one that we oftentimes use. I don't remember the last time somebody said to me, gird up the loins of your mind. Has anybody ever had somebody say that to you? I don't remember the last time I said that to somebody else. Hey, you need to gird up the loins of your mind. But it actually is, is, is a really good thing. It's a really good phrase. It, it simply means to prepare your mind for action. It simply means to think clearly. It simply means to be and stay alert. It means to mentally get ready and stay ready for action always. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, when the instructions were given to the children of Israel concerning their first Passover meal, you know, on that amazing night when the angel came through and and, uh, took the lives of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, And the children of Israel were delivered from that because they had the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their house. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. On that amazing night, he said to them about uh, how they were to eat that Passover meal. And they were to eat that meal in a state of readiness. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Twice, when God was speaking to Job, he said to him, verse number, chapter 38 and chapter 40, two times, he said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. One time, speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, he said, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 35, Let your waist be girded and your lamps Burning. All of these are examples or illustrations, I think, of kind of what Peter was describing here. This, this pre- pre- preparation that needs to take place in us. In this case, preparation of your mind as a result of all that we are in Christ and all that we have in Him. We need to get our thoughts right. We need to think right. And thinking right requires preparation. It requires effort. So much of the Christian walk has to do with our mind, doesn't it? has to do with the way we think. Just a few weeks ago, we preached on Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on those things. Peter was saying, you are the chosen of God. You are the elect of God. You are born again. You are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. You are kept and protected and guarded by the very power of the omnipotent God. That ought to impact how you think. It ought to. It ought to influence you to get your thought life right. It's not a passive thing. It doesn't just happen. It's an active thing. We need to actively work at it. Proactively prepare our minds for action. We need to work at thinking about God, thinking about Christ, thinking about His words. We need to work at filling our minds with His truth, saturating ourselves in it. I don't remember if I shared this uh, before with you. I, I may have. There's a fellow by the name of Dane Alf, and some of you know him. And uh, he's been helping us with our discipleship efforts for several years now. 
In one of our meetings, uh, Dane was sharing just some of some thoughts about his own personal walk with Christ and his own personal Bible times that he has during the day. And he shared a, an incident. He said he'd been going about his day, and uh, not just a normal day, nothing really serious about it at all. But he was uh, he was kind of coming toward the end of the day, and he just realized the thought came into his mind that I have not thought about God one time today, at least that I can't remember. And that really bothered him. And it would really bother any of us. It should, anyway, because we need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to be thinking about these things. C.S. Lewis once said, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And Martin Luther King said, Rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. But Peter here is saying just the opposite. That's their opposite attitude of what we ought to have. We ought to be thoughtful. We ought to be preparing our mind every day so that we're ready for whatever comes our way. And that's the whole reason of setting aside time each day uh, for, you know, daily quiet time, daily devotion, spending time individually with God and His words. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we meditate on the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we memorize verses from the Bible, because that is how we gird up the loins of our mind. It's how we prepare our mind for action, by immersing it in the Bible. Not just on Sunday mornings. Every day of the week, of every month, of every year, until Jesus comes. Henry Blackaby said, as Christians, we need to take more time thinking through our faith. We need to take blocks of time where we take the truths of God's Word and meditate on them until we are anchored in them and they affect every area of our life. Sinclair Ferguson said, The more our minds are saturated in Scripture, the greater will be its impact on our mental processes at every level. And MacArthur said, The secret to the Spirit-filled life is the Word-filled mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, Christian. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody here this morning. This convicts me. I mean, in addition to hearing a 30-minute sermon from God's Word on Sunday mornings, do you also read the Bible on your own? Do you participate in other Bible study activities, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, discipleship triads? Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter went on to say that we need to be sober. And that word means self-control. We need to be self-controlled. And, of course, self-control is exactly what we need if we're going to discipline ourselves toward filling our mind with truth. It requires self-control. When we say that we can't read the Bible every day, what we really are saying is that we don't want to. When we say that we are too busy to include time for daily Bible reading and prayer, what we really mean is we'd rather do something else. It takes self-control, discipline to carve out time for these things, to gird up the loins of our mind. Self-control. And you know, the thing is, we all have that. We all have that. It's fruit of the Spirit. And therefore, all of us who have the Holy Spirit within us have all the self-control that we need. Galatians chapter 5 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control. There it is. Against such there is no law. So we're to be thoughtful, we're to be sober or self-controlled. He said we're also to be hopeful. 
We are to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 13. It might be helpful here to remind ourselves of the overarching theme that Peter was addressing throughout this letter, and that was the theme of suffering, going through trials and difficulties. Peter was reminding these believers that he was writing to that they could deal with whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever suffering might come their way by, in this case, preparing their mind and by hoping right. He said, remember the source of your hope. It rests in Jesus Christ and his soon return. This is the fourth time, in, just these, in this first chapter, the fourth time that he has alluded to our ultimate hope as believers being in the return of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, and now in verse number 13. Jesus is coming again, and that is the source of our hope. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He said, quote, good or God will invade. And when that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. I love that. I love that because it reminds me that when he comes, all will be made right. Everything that's nonsensical and ridiculous and and sinful in our world today will be done away with. And God will make everything right. That ought to be the continual source of our hope. We ought to be resting in that hope, resting fully in that hope. King James Version translation says we ought to hope to the end. I think I like that one the best. So we're to be thoughtful and we're to be hopeful. He went on to mention another thing here uh, about what we ought to be as a result of who we are in Christ. And that is in verses 14 and 15. He said we ought to be holy and obedient. Holy and obedient. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, now, there are a couple of instructions none of us really like to hear. None of us really like to think about, you need to be obedient. None of us really like to think about, you need to be holy. But because we are the chosen of God, because we are born again, inheriting all that he has for us, kept, protected forever by him, We ought to be those things, holy and obedient. As Christians, we're no longer to live as we did before we were saved, not conforming ourselves to the former lusts, is the way he put it there. means not living in a worldly and sinful way like we did before we knew Jesus. Now, if you were saved as a child, I was saved when I was 12. If you were saved as a child, perhaps that thought doesn't mean much to you because you didn't have a whole life of sin beforehand, but if you were saved later in life, that may mean something to you. You may be able to look back on a lifestyle that you know is not what God wants for you now. And as believers, we ought to be striving always to obey our Savior and Lord, not picking and choosing the parts of the Bible we want to obey or listen to, accepting it all and striving to obey it all. When we read our Bibles, we ought to not just be reading them to, to get information into our minds. We ought to be reading them, considering how to apply them to our lives. We ought to be asking questions of the Lord as we read, Lord, is there a command in this for me to obey today? What is it? Help me to obey it. Is there a promise here for me to rejoice in and praise you for? Is there something that I'm reading in your word today that I should take action on this very day? You see, we read these things that we might put them into practice in our lives. That's how we ought to be reading our Bibles daily anyway, not just to gain information, but to practice it, to obey it, 
Obey it. I don't know about you, but I struggle with sin. I doubt I'm the only person in the room who struggles with sin. It's always there. It's always trying to make me disobey. But because of what I am in Christ and what I have in Christ, I need to be striving to obey. I need to be striving always for holiness. And so, too, do you, Christian. Striving to obey. That's the mindset we seek. It's the mindset Peter described here. We're seeking to become outwardly what we already are, inwardly. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Peter said something uh, seemingly contradictory. In chapter 2 and verse number 9, he said, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There he said, You are holy. You're already there. But then you flip over to chapter 5 and verse number 10, which we indicated is most likely the key verse of the entire book. He said, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In other words, you're not quite there yet. You've got some perfecting to be done. So you already are holy, but okay, you're not quite holy yet. You're not quite perfect yet. So which is it? Which is it? Those two statements that seem to be in conflict remind us that our salvation really occurs in well, stages, three different tenses, three different aspects of our salvation. We mention it every once in a while, but it's good to remember. There's a past to it, a present to it, and a future to it. When we first trusted Jesus Christ, in my case, I was 12. I knelt right here at this altar and trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Uh, when, we, when we did that and when we were born again, we were saved that moment from the penalty of our sin. Never again where we face the judgment for our sin. That was already judged. It was judged on the cross. And we partake in that judgment when we trust Jesus. At that moment, we were declared holy in the mind of God. At that very moment. That's justification. Justification. When we get to heaven one day, hallelujah, we are going to, in that very moment, be saved from the presence of sin. Never again will we experience evil thoughts or desires. Never again will we find ourselves tempted to conform ourselves to our former lusts. Never again will there be sin in any form. At that moment, we will be in all fullness what we are now, just in the mind of God. And that is holy. We will be holy completely. That's glorification. This past Wednesday night, we had uh, our Bible talk with the elders when we asked questions. And I don't remember what the question was we were addressing, but I know the teens were in here and they were sitting back there. And one of the teens asked the question, something like, do you think you'll be different when you get to heaven? I don't remember exactly what the question was, but it was something along those lines. And I thought to myself, wow, I so long for how different I'll be. No sin. No sinful desire. Nothing. Well, that's glorification. But in between past and present, or past and future, I mean, we live in the present. We live in the here and now. Uh, when we are declared holy in the mind of God, but we're not really holy in reality. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with evil thoughts. In the present, in the here and now, we need to be striving to become more and more holy. Striving to become obedient. Striving to become outwardly what we are inwardly already in the mind of God. This is the Christian walk. This is the Christian life. This is sanctification. All three of those things are true. Now, now, we need to be absolutely clear on this. We don't strive to be holy and obedient in order to be saved. 
The Bible is laser focused. The Bible is crystal clear about this. We cannot obey enough or be holy enough to earn our way into heaven. I don't know what your backgrounds are for some of you here. Maybe some who are visiting today. Maybe you've been taught that you can just, you know, obey the, good, the Ten Commandments and earn your way into heaven. Maybe you've been taught that you can be good enough to earn your salvation. But no, the Bible is clear that's not the case. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, you, By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus chapter 3, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We do not try to be holy in order to be saved, because we are saved. We try to be holy. Spurgeon reminded us holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. And we are saved by admitting how very unholy we are. And by confessing our sin and looking to the cross where Jesus Christ's death paid the penalty for our sin. By believing on Him, trusting His work there to save us. We're, we're saved by believing that. Believing on Him and nothing else. As many as received Him to them. He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life. Believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life. Has passed from death unto life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We could go on and on, but the point is believing in Jesus is what's saved. Believing in Jesus and Him alone, that's the way to be saved. But once we are saved, we ought to be increasingly obedient. Because of what you are in Christ, because of what you have in Christ, we ought to be striving for holiness more today than yesterday, growing a bit more each day until Jesus comes. Paul wrote something similar to the Ephesians. He said in Ephesians chapter 4 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And notice the order here. The word order is important here, I think. Being obedient and holy comes after being thoughtful and hopeful. Holiness And obedience result from girding up the loins of your mind and hoping to the end on Jesus. Do you see that? Obedience. Holiness. Only possible when we get our minds right first. A prepared, sober mind is the prerequisite to obedience and holiness. Well, let's notice one last thing. Because of who we are and what we have in Christ, because we are chosen, born again, heirs of people kept and protected by the very power of God, we ought not only to be thoughtful and hopeful, not only be obedient and holy, we also ought to be, and this is verses 17 through 19, we ought to be fearful and mindful. Fearful and mindful. Notice verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Verse 18, knowing, being mindful, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Conduct yourselves in fear. Not fear as we often think of the word 
you know, we would use it as like being afraid or trembling in fear over something. That's not what Peter was referring to there. He was referring uh, to living in a state of reverential awe. That's the fear he's talking about there. And why would we live in that state? Because when we take into account, when we're mindful of the price that was paid to save our souls, how can we think any other way? How can we think any other way? It would do us good to read verses 18 and 19 over and over in our minds and let it sink down into our brains and into our hearts and into our souls. How can we not be awestruck by the reality that Jesus loved us enough to die for us? How can we not live lives of reverent fear before God when we understand the high cost that he paid for our salvation? His beloved son's precious blood. We were redeemed. Josh talked about this a little bit during communion today. We were redeemed. That word means we were liberated. We were released by the paying of our ransom. Jesus did that on the cross when he shed his blood so that you would not have to do so yourself. When he died in your place. With his word spoken on that cross, it is finished. He purchased your redemption. He bought you back. Out of slavery. Matthew chapter 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave himself a ransom for all, Paul told Timothy. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We weren't redeemed with money. We weren't redeemed with silver or gold or anything else ordinary. Verse number 18, nothing so mundane as that. No, we were redeemed with the very blood of the Savior. Verse number 19. The Savior who loved us so much that he was willing to die in our place. Peter was saying, be mindful of the cost, Christian. Be mindful of it. Be awestruck by what Jesus paid to redeem you. Whatever you might go through in this short time here on this earth, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever troubles, it ought to fade into the background if you will but remind yourself of who you are and what you have in Christ and of what He paid to buy you back and to redeem your soul from destruction. One man said, I am so bad that He had to die for me. And I am so loved that He was glad to die for me. We need to be mindful of that. We need to stay in awe of that. Spurgeon said, My entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be in awe of that. How do we not live every moment of our lives here in awe over these things? Andre Crouch put this thought in a song. You've heard it. We've sung it here before. How can I say thanks for the things you've done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. We are to be thoughtful and self-controlled. 
We are to be obedient and holy. We are to be fearful and mindful. Because of who we are as Christians, because of what we have in Christ, such should characterize our lives in ever-increasing amounts until Jesus calls us home.